0: When you move a muscle, you can damage the muscle. And that's the whole idea of gaining muscle as you break it down so that it will build up bigger. Well, if you have mold on board, you don't get the repair part. The natural cycle of a muscle tissue of being built and then broken down, now we're only getting the broken down part and people get less and less and less skeletal muscle mass. And that actually is how the connection with POTS, the smooth muscle lining all of our blood vessels also gets impacted. And so people don't have the resiliency and the strength
1: of those tissues and muscles as well. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Dr. Jill Krista, you are a naturopathic physician out of Southwest Wisconsin. Is that right? Yeah. I am also a Midwesterner from All Michigan. Right. And um, you have a full practice, not even taking on more patients with chronic issues with a focus of mold and Lyme's disease. And I know you are in a part of Wisconsin that really has a, a big prevalence of Lyme's. And you have a course that teaches doctors how to become mold literate. Yes. And I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. It's really an honor to talk with you. Yeah. So mold is everywhere, right? And some people are like the canary in the coal mine, right? You like, they go into a house or even a building and they immediately know. They have brain fog. Maybe they their sinuses start to get flared up. Um, certain issues, different symptoms start to come up. Can you share, because I know you have gone through mold exposure as well as myself, mm-hmm. why are some people affected so, so heavily? And then another person can go into that same house and just be like, totally fine. Right, right. Well, yeah. and the
0: totally fine, I would even like push back on a little bit because it's like, these are the the toxins that come from mold in an indoor environment are, they're, bio-warfare weapons. Other militaries around the world are using these things as bio-warfare. So they do affect everybody. But the three key factors of why one person is the, the classic canary and why person, another person can feel like they're not being affected is dose, duration, and susceptibility. So, so it's, dose,
1: duration, mm-hmm. and susceptibility.
0: Yeah. Okay. And sometimes I should add a fourth one, which is which mycotoxin is it? So there are there are different molds that can exist in an indoor environment, and they're sort of on a hierarchy. You know, of like the bad bad guys, and then just the generally bad guys, but they're all bad guys.
1: <laughs> can you so. break out just uh, even on that topic? Like, what are the bad bad guys? Mm. Just like a couple names, and then what are like the bad guys that kind of sometimes get glossed over? As like, ah, oh, that's not so bad.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So the bad, bad guys are stachybotrys, that's the classic black mold, ketomium or chetomium, depending on where you are in the country, trichoderma, willimia. Those are some of the ones that we see that are what we call thirsty molds. So if they're there, there's been a longstanding or significant water damage problem. Now, the other bad guys, aspergillus, penicillium, cladosporium, Gladysborium is not that bad of a guy in that he just makes VOCs, microbial VOCs, but for chemically sensitive people, that's a big deal. But aspergillus and penicillium, they get glossed over because they're seen so commonly. And I'm on this big mission. So I'm just so grateful to you that you have me on the podcast because I get to say things like just because it's commonly found doesn't mean it's healthy. So in the mold inspection world now, they're starting to see it so commonly. And remember, they, have, they only get called into buildings that have a suspect problem. They're not seeing healthy buildings. So they're seeing this very, very commonly, aspergillus penicillium. They call it aspen. I mean, they've, it's even shortened how often we see them together. But these are not insignificant molds. They create a toxin called ocrotoxin, which can cause kidney cancer. So like, that's a big deal. Just because you see it a lot doesn't mean it's okay.
1: Yeah. So I've heard just on the topic of remediators talk about in terms of doing an air quality test, the Aspergillus count outdoors might be higher than what it is indoors. So it's okay. Right. My thought is like, but it's still indoors and it's not supposed to be indoors. So is this an issue or is it not?
0: And, And your outdoor may not be a healthy outdoor space. Yes. So, you know, comparing it to outdoor isn't the gold standard. We really need to be comparing it to what is best for the respiratory passages and health of a human.
1: Right. Can mm-hmm. you talk about susceptibility in terms of one of those factors? Is that like a genetic predisposition or? Mm-hmm.
0: It can be genetics. There is um, Dr. Shoemaker and one of my mentors, Dr. Wayne Anderson and, and Dr. Neil Nathan. They've created kind of this. Um, this Rosetta Stone for figuring out these HLA expressions on genes. And there is a, a set of them that if you have certain HLA expressions, you don't clear mycotoxins as efficiently. But what I've seen in practice is that doesn't determine someone's success as heavily as their genetic SNPs for detoxification. So methylation SNPs, Comp you know, t these different... Whatever is involved in the whole detoxification of mycotoxins, SUOX is another one, S-U-O-X, like people don't tolerate sulfur. A lot of mold sick people or mold affected people don't tolerate sulfur because that particular pathway gets blocked up or locked up. So those are the ones that I see genetically that tend to be the ones that are the more heavily weighted on whether somebody is tolerating the treatment well, or if we have how much more support we need to do. The other piece about susceptibility though, is nutritional status and pre-existing health status. I've seen that the people that have very low essential fatty acids and low glutathione, because of their dietary choices, they don't fare as well when they're exposed to mold. So you see that, like, you know, robust person who can, and a lot of them are in the remediator world because they can tolerate it. You know, the masks that they wear don't clear mycotoxins. So these guys are getting exposed to mycotoxins all day. And so I'm always, I am after them. I'm like, take milk, this all, you know, (laughs) please take quercetin, please take DHA, protect yourself because eventually this is going to affect your microflora and your microbiome. But yeah, they can clear things very well because they're doing things in their own life, their lifestyle factors, their diet, their movement that just helps the body clear it out. (laughs)
1: And you're talking about like the detoxification pathways, like the liver, the kidney, the digestion.
0: Sweating. Can you poop? Can, you know,
1: all the, all the body fluids that we don't like to
0: talk about the embarrassing stuff.
1: (laughs) And when you talk about glutathione, so many of the listeners probably know glutathione is like the master antioxidant and interesting. So I'll tell you a story. And in my house, we've had water damage and we've had to remediate and we did an ion test On my two year old, he was two at the time, and he was like burning through his glutathione reserves. And that was like a sign, right? And I know you use that as kind of an indicator that Mm -hmm. there's been exposure.
0: Yes. Mold, yeah. And also vitamin D, interestingly enough. So, mold mycotoxins block our receptor to vitamin D in our kidneys and in our intestines. So, people will become kind of photosensitive they can't be in the sunlight. Sunlight makes them uncomfortable. They don't tolerate getting too hot, kind of an MS-y kind of look. Mm. And that all has to do with that blockage of vitamin D. So those are two nutrients that I'm really careful to monitor. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So
1: mold is known as kind of the great imitator, right? And you see patients with mold exposure, with Lyme's disease, and especially in the women with Hashimoto's with an autoimmune condition who have fatigue, brain fog, difficulty losing weight... Those are really kind of similar symptoms to mold exposure. Can you share maybe some other symptoms? And then also, why is it known as a great imitator?
0: Yeah, I'll tackle that one first. It's a great imitator because these toxins are fat-soluble or lipid-soluble. When I first heard fat soluble and I would before I went to medical school, I would think of love handles, you know, like, oh no, fat soluble means I want to get, you know, a big booty or whatever. But (laughs) I
1: have a mold booty.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Mold handles. So but what that means to a doctor is that these toxins can bioaccumulate, which means they can soak into these these tissues that are fat based or lipid-based, and they can go anywhere then in the body that has that kind of a tissue. And that means your brain, your nervous system, your glands. So thyroid gets particularly hit also because it's the closest to our first interface. The first interface with a moldy building is usually inhaled in our sinuses, and our tonsils are the the you know drainage like the the toilet of the brain and sinuses so to speak so those are sitting right next to the thyroid and the thyroid gets hit particularly hard. Um, that also means our gut lining and we know the connection between immune function, autoimmune disease and gut function. That means these toxins can go into all those tissues. So imagine now how hard it is to diagnose mold illness because it could cause any symptom in those types of tissues. So it's very hard to find. I had to create a questionnaire in my practice because I was seeing a lot of Lyme patients and Dr. Richard Horowitz has created this great questionnaire, the MSIDS questionnaire for Lyme. And I thought, I wonder if I could create that for for mold and shorten the decision making. And so there are some things that are particularly mold, like a mold specialty, and that's fatigue. Number one is fatigue. Well, how do you identify that from someone with Hashimoto's? You know, I think mean, that can be a very hard, nah. okay, well, which one is it? You know, what what's going on? The other one is anxiousness. There's some level of unsettled on the interior of, of, the, of a person's mind or body. They could be calm as a cucumber-minded person, but their body is restless. Or they could be, you know, have so much fatigue, they don't feel like moving, but the mind is just, you know, like squirrel brain kind of thing. So anxiousness is, I don't think I have seen one mold sick person that didn't have some level of that. And I'm careful not to say anxiety because it's not like an anxiety disorder, although that can happen. This is more just an inner sense of unrest. Yeah. Some quirky ones with mold are ear ringing and pelvic pain.
1: And that's
0: a very interesting thing. Yeah. So like Lyme has its migratory pain. That's one of its things that Dr. Horowitz has been able to really elucidate, that that's what makes it different than co-infections and things like that. Very different from mold. Mold doesn't have wandering arthritis. It has more exposure-based symptomatology. So sometimes that means you're more symptomatic when you're in the mold, you're less symptomatic when you're out of it. But if that exposure has gone on a long, long, long time, Sometimes the first part of getting out of it, you actually get like a detoxification reaction. So I've seen people's autoimmune diseases flare once they got out for a couple of weeks because the body was like, oh, I have to tell you about all these things that I want to complain about. Yeah.
1: So in this detoxification process, let's just say the example you gave where someone found out they had left their moldy house is it just an amplification of their current symptoms or is it new symptoms? So for example, could it be, I feel anxious, but now I'm like depressed and angry and like, is it an amplification or is it just, What? how does it present? Yeah,
0: both. both. So typically it will start with your pre-existing Achilles heels. It will start with whatever it is that you have going on. So maybe you're not the best sleeper in the world. And that suddenly your sleep is getting worse and worse and worse to the point where maybe you want to start taking something and trying something and you get do meditation apps. And like when, you, when you're starting to kind of take action on that preexisting thing and maybe weight gain is a problem for you and you start to just gain and gain and you're like, what is going on? Is this hormonal? You know, what's happening? So it'll take whatever preexisting thing is happening and it will amplify it initially. And then it starts making new stuff and that can take 3 to 6 months before we really see the new thing show up. Wow. Yeah.
1: Cuz you know, you think okay, mold outdoors, if it's indoors, you know, we're kind of getting exposed molds everywhere. How does mold, you know, from a process really wreak havoc on the body?
0: Mhm. So, outdoor mold is under the influences of other natural forces that keep it in check and keep it from acting aggressively and being a bad actor, I guess. So it has things like air movement, sunshine, other microbes living in, you know, the, the ideas that things are living in harmony. Now we know that that's not happening everywhere in nature, but mold has a very important job, which is to decompose dead previously organic material. Well, what do we build our houses with? Dead organic material. And so when it comes into this, this environment to start doing its job, without all the natural forces to control it, it starts to behave badly because it starts to feel like it's not supported in its job of decomposing things into nutrients that can be used by another living thing again, the composter. So what we see is that in um, we can kind of learn a lesson from looking at studies of sinuses. There's a really fantastic study done where they looked at the sinuses of healthy and then sick people. And these sick people had chronic fatigue syndrome Where other things had been ruled out, although I don't remember if they ruled out Hashimoto's. But I think that, you know, they kind of looked at thyroid function, probably with the basic stuff, other things that might, probably not looking at adrenals either, but, you know, other chronic fatigue type things. So the chronic fatigue people and the healthy people all had fungus in their sinuses. The difference was the healthy people, those fungus weren't making mycotoxins, but in the sick people, they were and that's how i picture it the same thing with like a the outdoor being the healthy environment and the indoors being sort of a fabricated unnatural environment and now you put mold in both places and the mold on the inside will start to make more mycotoxins to defend itself
1: hmm. one remediator i met talked about like think of the mold as a tree and you can tell me if this is like an accurate description and the mycotoxins are like the tree has dried and died. And then it's just like little kind of broken little bits of the tree. Is that, is that how you would explain a mycotoxin?
0: No, that's interesting. So I think what he's talking about is fragments and those yeah. are very dangerous. When mold dries and then dies, if it gets broken up, these teeny tiny little fragments act kind of like asbestos. They can get into our respiratory passages and wedge in there. These guys do also, they're not a whole mold, but they can secrete mycotoxins if there were mycotoxins in that mold. Mm. So the fragments are the broken up little pieces. The mycotoxins are typically made by a living, thriving mold that is defending its territory. So it has found a sweet spot in your house, which is your water damaged area, or even, even a really cluttered area. Let's say you have a basement and you store cardboard boxes down there. That's a great way to be a mold farmer. Um, <laughs> I don't recommend it. So if you have a lot of clutter and there's a lot of humidity and really easy to digest materials, mold will move in and other spores will want to come move in and then it'll start competing with that. And those are what mycotoxins are. There's also these other chemicals like alcohols, aldehydes, that's from happily metabolizing molds. So not all molds make mycotoxins all the time, but if there's enough of a Moisture problem that many spores want to come, then you'll start to see the the defensiveness.
1: So, is mold always visible? You know, because no. I think especially us human beings who rely on our eyes, we're like, oh, well, I don't see any mold. Right. But the air quality <laughs> test picks it up. So, is it there or is it not there? You know. Right. Right. Especially is this a reliable
0: up. test? Yeah. yeah. Are my okay. eyes,
1: like, good enough. For- <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, no, it's microscopic. We have to remember that. If you just if you can see mold, a one inch square mold contains a million spores.
1: Oh my god! <laughs> I think I just got <laughs> I, nauseous thinking. I know. About. I think
0: when I was reading that, I started to have lung. You know, after my own exposure, I was like, oh, suddenly can't breathe. Yeah. So a million spores are in a one inch square, single layer, one inch square. Now mold, of course, grows in depth and and width. So. And in my own personal case, if you don't mind me sharing, yeah, we had mold on all three levels of my home behind building material. Nothing smelled musty. I'm I'm love a clean house, so I'm careful. I don't like clutter. So we, you know, dusting is easy, vacuuming is easy, that kind of thing. And it was one of those surprises that once they opened the walls, that's when you could see the mold, but there were no indicators there started to be one little seam crack and little stain on the ceiling of my kitchen. And it was like, what is that? Have I not been running the fan when I steam vegetables? You know, like that was just my thought process. So yeah, you don't have to necessarily see it and people can still be made sick from mold, even if you're not able to interact with the spores. And that's one of my missions. I'm trying to expand the definition of mold illness from, because if you look on the CDC, that's pretty much like spore based reactions. But the majority of my patients, yeah, like sinuses, allergies, asthma. If it's gone on long enough, maybe some skin rashes if the spores are on your bedding material or something like that, or in their in your washing machine. And you know, like that's we'll see that with baby diapers because they have to be against the skin so long. That's a spore reaction, but the mycotoxin reaction is the majority of the people that I see, and that was the case in our in our situation. We weren't necessarily having respiratory based. Or allergic based symptoms. We were having mycotoxin-based symptoms, fatigue, brain fog, you know, the whole immune depletion and blah. So yeah, you don't even
1: have to see it. So going back to your experience, because it's behind walls and it's on all three floors, you know, my initial thing is like, oh my God, do I have to rip out every single wall in every single room? With like how does even someone even know where to start? Because I can think it can be very overwhelming and especially when someone in the family is reactive and someone is not mm-hmm. the same way. And I see it in Facebook groups cause I'm part of mold. Like it is, you know, women are like, I'm about to get a divorce, you know, cause yeah. there's so, I feel it. I'm so, you know, so affected and my husband thinks I'm crazy and like it's creating so much tension. So mm-hmm. It's the
0: biggest inconvenient truth that there is, you know, because it's yeah. not only now affecting health, but it's affecting finances, your sanctuary, your, you know, all of that. So I, it is very unfortunate that not everybody reacts the same way because, it, and and men don't realize they are being affected, but it's in ways that they can't put their fingers on. And it's not the same way as women get affected. So it seems it seems like they're fine, but what they're actually getting is testosterone depletion. They're getting thyroid dysregulation. They're getting muscle mass loss. They're getting lack of drive. They're getting irritability and anger. So what's happening with the male hormone panel is completely different than what happens with with women. And we can see men gain weight, but typically it's going to be that they're going to be losing weight, if I could generalize. Yeah, you know? interesting. Yeah.
1: And then w- with the women, what do you see more in terms of like a symptomatology...
0: Gut problems, fatigue, again, kind of feeling unraveled, like they're not equipped for what's ahead in their life, you know, waking up with anxiousness of like, there's no way I'm going to get through this day. There's too many things on my plate and I'm being expected to do more than I possibly could do. Urinary tract problems, weight gain, typically, although there are the cases of weight loss and headaches. Bad skin, that's the other one. Women notice the bad skin more than
1: men. (laughs) That is such a broad array of symptoms, but, you know, and especially from a cultural perspective, um, especially in these times of like staying at home orders and women are taking more of the load and more of the childcare, that feeling of like, it's all on me Mm -hmm. is already kind of in the background. already there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we do, even in a normal non-COVID time, we live our lives very isolated You know, we don't have the generational living, the multi-generational living that many other cultures do. So yeah, it is all on you, you know?
1: Yeah. I was just reading an article on aspergillosis and COVID. It was not from like a reputable source, but it was talking about kind of a little bit of a correlation of patients who did not respond well to COVID, like had a longer time healing, had aspergillosis. I don't know if you, have you seen that at all? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and we don't know cause or effect.
1: Right. One
0: of the things that they're doing to manage the cytokine storm is put people on steroids. Mm. So that's something again for your listeners that with autoimmune disease, a very common treatment is to is to suppress the immune system. Well, mold is already suppressing the immune system. That's what your body's complaining about if mold is behind it. So when we get a further suppressed immune system, now fungus fungal infections are common whether you had a mold exposure or not. So yeah, we're at, we're, we know it's happening, we just don't know a cause or effect.
1: Interesting. Do you feel like someone has to get out of the mold environment to heal? You know, especially remediation is very expensive and not all of us have the means to be able to like move out, remediate, or even just to like leave the place that we had mold. Do you, is it absolutely necessary to get out of the environment to heal?
0: I wish that I could say it doesn't have to be that way. I tried to make that be that way for five to 10 years of treating mold. My first five to 10 years, I got talked into it by my patients of like, really, I I think we're fine. We're going to, you know, we'll just take our supplements and that kind of thing. And it's just like with diet, you can't out supplement a crappy diet. You can't keep up with the effects that mold is making on your body if you're still in that environment. I'm very, very pushy about avoidance. And it's amazing now that I'm like, you know wrote a book and so I get referred all the complicated cases that no one could figure out. It is astounding to me how many times it was because they were still being affected by mold. They still had exposure. So yeah, I'm pretty pushy.
1: If you could move anywhere in the States that had the least chance of living in mold, if you're going to pick a place, where would that be? High mountain deserts, probably. High mountain deserts. So kind of like mm-hmm. a Colorado.
0: Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And it's funny that I've lived all of those places. So I must have been <laughs> mold. Like I I was prepped for this in my family. Laramie, Wyoming is where I grew up. Lived oh. in Bend, Oregon. All just perfect, you know, dry, dry. And in those situations, you're fighting against dehydration all the time. Yeah. Now that said, anywhere you live, you can still have water damage and mold inside. There are places that are easier, like you were talking about the outdoor versus the indoor comparison of aspergillus. Some places are just moldier places because mm-hmm. they're wetter or they have more deciduous trees that have to be broken down and turned into nutrients again, that kind of thing. So somewhere high mountain desert or, or mountain and pine or you know evergreen versus
1: deciduous, I think that that's, uh, that would be the place to go. And then, if you were to build your dream house out of any material, what yes. would it be?
0: So I am working on that right now, personally. Oh, I love that. Um, I hope to write about it and and share the process. It's going to be years. So I've been in, interviewing different people, and there are a couple of. Thing. There's something I'm very excited about and want to put it in my own plan, but apparently it's hard to get get a hold of, and that's pumice crete. So it's like concrete, but made with pumice stone. Mm. If you're sulfur sensitive, that's not going to work for you. But like I love hot springs and volcanoes and that kind of thing. So I was like, wouldn't it be cool? I'm basically living in a volcano. So yeah, pumice crete. And then Paula Baker-Laporte, she is she wrote a book years and years and years ago, The Healthy House Book. I interviewed her and she recommended something called Fast Wall, F-A-S Wall. And that's a little easier to get a hold of. And it's, it's showing to be a breathable wall. So breathability is going to be really important. And I mean, I am not a building expert at all. That's why I'm hiring people that are. But what I'm learning from them is that there's a combination of breathability, and energy efficiency. And there is the sweet spot in there. If you go too locked down, too tight of a home, which is what we did and why we have mold on the rise, that's why this isn't just a trendy diagnosis. This was a manufactured diagnosis. <laughs> then now we have ultra tight homes that don't breathe and we don't manage humidity. Perfect setup. So what we're trying to do is find that thing that is somewhat energy and efficient, but still breathable.
1: So hard. And I love that you're like going through this process and doing the research for us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you were, so we're talking about the home. Maybe it's a newer home that's not breathable, or you had the option of an older home. You know, but you don't know how much water. Like, would you kind of be like, "Eh, I'm going to go with a new construction, or maybe I'll go with the more breathable older home, and you know, around and make sure. Are you
0: are you dealing with that decision right now? You know, you I, I'm kind of
1: people? like, um, I kind of want to find a place, high desert, breathability, like maybe the air can flow through. And mm-hmm. then some nights I just lay in my bed and I'm like, just put me in like a tin shed where the mold yes. can't grow and there's no wood. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how many times I said, I
0: just need a yurt.
1: I just need a yurt. I need to get rid
0: of all the things and just live in a yurt. There's no
1: ticks near the yurt. They just
0: Yeah. And no ticks. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So right. yeah, if you're going to go like new construction, but it's like not breathable or like older, but like you kind of don't know what's been going on. In right. The, the past longer decade. the
0: age, just like a human, the more water events that could have happened in that house. And the more water events, the more potential for having that break up a bowl mold. The one that where it, there was a mold problem, but they fixed the leak and now they let it dry out. And now you have fragment possibility. So- that's a very hard question. I think that's going to have to be just building by building decision. And in all of this stuff, like I'm not a building expert. I've learned a lot through the years and I do, I'm a very interactive doctor. In the early years, I would go to home visits for my patients and that's how we started to, that's how I found the water problem in this patient's house that had lime. I was like, there's got to be something going on. Can I come to a home visit? And here is this, you know, little paint bubble at the base of their stairs that their contractor had drawn a line around with a pen and said, "As long as that doesn't grow, we're good." And this had been ten years, so it was growing all behind the walls. Ugh. They had a terrible black mold problem, and that's so. I was like, "Okay, home visits for all of you people that aren't that aren't getting better." And so, what I've learned with that, you know, visiting a lot of homes is that it's really so much a home by home decision. Some homes are made so wisely; you can see that they thought about everything. And like you're talking about the the air exchange, it's a great idea. But so far, I haven't seen an air exchanger that's dehumidifying the air on the way in. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get whatever the humidity is of the outdoor space. So that's gonna be great for a dry space or a dry environment and climate. Terrible thing for where I live. We have 90% humidity all summer long. You know, so you're basically bringing in more humidity with that air exchange.
1: Do you um, recommend dehumidifiers for your patients, for your clients? Yes, yeah. yes. And like
0: careful, cautious monitoring of humidity. So by the little humidistats that you get for like reptile cages yeah. and put them in every room of your house because every room is going to be a little bit different. Every room has a different way that it can exchange the air and efficiency of the furnace if there's a blower. If you have a radiator heat, radiated heat is a better deal because it mm-hmm. dries out the air as it is working and there's no duct work. So you're it's asking right. like the newer build that's tight. Yeah. I would go for one where there's no finished basement. Like if you were making that decision between an older home, older home, you do run the risk of having more water events, but finding something where, and it usually makes it a lot more affordable because finished basements adds, you know, especially in like Michigan area in the Midwest, like everybody lives in their basement, but a finished basement is a perfect recipe for mold growth. So I try to help my patients. I'm like, okay, you want to find the one that doesn't look as good to your realtor because they're looking for finished basement, but you want an unfinished
1: basement. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Is there a sweet spot for humidity when you're checking? Mm Yeah.
0: Yeah ideally under 50%, our respiratory passages don't feel good when it's that low. So I try to get between 50 and 60. Now the, the remediators that I work with, are like, no, 60 is going to grow mold, you know, so, <laughs> but you also have to work in comfort. And, you know, as long as you're managing dust and clutter and no cardboard boxes on basement floors, yeah. and that kind of stuff.
1: Do you have a favorite, like dehumidifier brand or?
0: No, I, yeah, I just, yeah. Yeah. Make sure you're getting one that is good for the amount of square footage. That's the only thing. I see people trying to save money on the dehumidifier and so they get the smaller one. And it's basically only getting like a 15-foot radius around the space. Hmm, so you either get two of them. And again, if you get those little humidistats, you can see. I mean, I've had patients where they had a partially finished basement and it was a walkout kind of thing. The back room was fine, but it was actually the one that was more interfacing with the outdoor air as people go in and out. That needed the dehumidification. Well, their dehumidifier was back in the unfinished area and wasn't doing anything for the front space. And we found mold in the corners there. So, monitoring each room, I think, is super important. And then managing that, you know, if it's a fan, even just to keep air moving back toward your dehumidifier or something like that. Yeah.
1: So, for people who are now like, oh my God, do I have mold in my house? (laughs) I I have all those (laughs) symptoms. How would someone test to see if they have mold in their system? Sure. So, if
0: anyone is listening and you're like, um, "I wonder," you can go. To, I have a, a quiz online, moldquiz.com. It's a fun little quiz. People always say, "Oh my gosh, I learned so much when I was taking your quiz." You can breeze through the answers and get your get your results. Or if you want to learn, there's lots of write ups and information about that. The way that I approach it with the testing, it really depends on. How affected and where affected the body is, (laughs) or that person. So, if there's a lot of neurological stuff, then I'll start with a VCS test. That's a visual contrast sensitivity test that was developed by Dr. Shoemaker. It's a really simple, cheap $15. Go online, you do the test online, and it's just testing. It's kind of like these mycotoxins. I mean, think about we drink beers from yeast, and alcoholic fermentation is a very yeast driven thing. It's kind of like alcohol you've had too much to drink, your eyes don't work so well. So it's testing those same kind of perceptions in the visual system of the brain. And that tells me if it's fine, that doesn't necessarily rule out mold sickness, but it does tell me how neurologically affected the person is. And then I know how aggressive I need to be in that category. And then I like to use urine mycotoxin testing. There are limitations of the test for sure. So often I will start with Seeing what their vitamin D status is, their glutathione status. You know, if they're a really, really sensitive canary, where they can't tolerate going into a big box store or at the grocery store, they can't go down the aisle with all the cleaning solutions. Then I'm thinking, well, we might we might first test the glutathione and see if you're even going to be able to show me that you have mycotoxins. Mm-hmm. But in general, for the for the you know garden variety mold sick person. <laughs> I like to use that mycotoxin test because it goes up when symptoms go up, vice versa. As we get the the mycotoxins down, the symptoms are going down. So it's very correlative to how they're doing and their exposures.
1: Do you have cuz I know sometimes when people are working with a mold literate doctor or a functional medicine doctor or a naturopathic physician, Sometimes there's always these questions that come up of like, well, did my doctor order the right test? Mm. You know, and I know there's different companies, like there's real-time labs or Vibrant Health or Great Plains. Do you have them all kind of weighted as like, yes, that is a, a valid test?
0: All are valid. All are using very valid technology. So real-time lab is using the ELISA method, which is an antibody test. So I shouldn't say antibodies to mycotoxins that you have, they're testing it with the ELISA method is based on antibodies. And then the there's the mass spec test, which is a mass spectrometry, which right now Great Plains Lab and Vibrant use. And we doctors still don't have this figured out. So, oh. so it'd be really nice to just give you like an easy answer, but we don't have it all figured out about which method is better for which patient. And that's really what it comes down to with any kind of truly functional or naturopathic assessment. You wanna be meeting with somebody that is testing the things we need to know about you. If somebody already knows they have mold exposure and they're exhibiting symptoms, I don't test them. We don't waste the money on that. Mm-hmm. Remediation is gonna eat up that cost, you know. So that's where we need to put the effort. So when I'm looking at somebody that I've done some split sample testing, I have twins, so I did do my own like, you know, genetically identical, living in the same house and put one on one thing and one on so yeah, they I've done my own split sample testing to figure out like what are the different things that we do as people, as human beings, before we take this test that can affect the results of the test. So I worry about things like, you know, do a sauna the week, the whole week before. Well, now are we getting a true reading or are we getting a detox reading? Exercise and sweat, you know, for three days before. Well, again, we might be seeing lower numbers. Than it, their true body status because we've now helped them detox. Glutathione, when I, that's the thing that I tested comparing the mass spec to the ELISA method, and it seemed like adding glutathione messed up the mass spec. It made everything look a little better than the ELISA. So if I have somebody who I know needs to be on their glutathione, they have horrible brain fog or they have ticks or tremors or something like that, and they must be on it then I'm going to use the ELISA method. And if somebody can go off of it and they, they have other, I mean, there's other things I look at, you know, can they be off the binder? If they can't be off their binder, I'm going to use ELISA. If they can be off glutathione and binder for me right now, based on the split sample testing I've done, then I'll use a mass spec method. Partly for cost and partly just because of the, the science is looking right now, it's, you can get more mycotoxins with that that test. The labs are, it, it has an expanded panel for now.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned binders mm-hmm. and I know some doctors will use a very aggressive binder, right? Like cholestyramine mm-hmm. or Wellcol. And I notice in your book, even using binders that would be something more natural or gentle, like uh, charcoal or chlorella, sometimes that's not, not that you don't use them, but like, it's not like your immediate, like go-to first step.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah you- diet is my go to first step. And yeah. that's how we get the biggest bang for the buck on binders. That was a lot of bees. Biggest bang for the buck. <laughs> <laughs> so my approach is very different than like a shoemaker approach or whatever. And it's coming from my training as a naturopathic doctor and the theories that I've sort of developed working with a lot of Lyme and mold sick people. And my understanding could be incorrect, but this is how, where the treatment plan comes from, which is if you've been exposed to that water damage building, there's a continuum of effect that it creates on you. Initially, it's toxins and spores, if you're exposed to spores. Your body has a reaction to that, which could be allergic or detoxification. So you might get headaches, but you might get diarrhea, but that's your body actually detoxing. You know, A lot of people, their first reaction is they get diarrhea. And I'm like, that's exactly what a healthy body is supposed to do. But if you're continuing to be exposed to those toxins, over time, your sinubiome, you know, the microbiome of your sinuses, your microbiome now gets the message all the time that something's trying to move in and invade. So they start acting poorly. So they start acting like pathogenic biofilm instead of a community of, of microbiome. Mm-hmm. And then over time, that wears down the immune system of those tissues, and then the mold can move into your body in those tissues. So the sinuses and the gut. So when you look at that whole idea of why my approach is a little different, for me, I've found that when I knock back the fungus in the body, when I take away all things in the fungal family, that includes supplements, diet, you know, no mushrooms, no kombucha, no nothing. And we reset the balance of the microbiome by using antifungals, which often plant-based antifungals often have antibacterial. So we're doing like a double duty that allows the body then to not continue to make these mycotoxins to defend itself. I wanted to kind of explain that because that's why I don't go straight to binders because I'm starting with the dietary things that are going to help detox mycotoxins, get the binders through food and fiber. We might add it when we start someone on an antifungal. There's kind of a therapeutic order that I follow. But if we're just doing binders and we're not doing fungal rebalance... The fungus is the fire, the mycotoxins are the smoke. If you're only binding up the smoke and you're not putting out the fire, you're just gonna continue to do that over and over again. Some people's bodies, just by getting that toxin burden out, rebound, but that's gonna be the rarer case.
1: Interesting. And do you have to treat the gut and the sinuses to be yes. able to like really fully heal? Yeah. Yep.
0: Yep. Cause think about it. Like how much snot do you swallow that you don't even think about? You know, It's yeah. <laughs> kind of gross. I mean, but this is the sinuses are the first interface with that water damage building. So every time you swallow, you're seeding the gut on the way down.
1: Mm. And when you talk about supplements that would be maybe mold heavy, what would those be? That would be like a Bulardi or?
0: Mm-hmm. Saccharomyces Bulardi. Fantastic treatment for garden variety candida. Like, you know, if you have candida because you went on an antibiotic, which by the way, a lot of antibiotics are mycotoxins. So, you know, you go on the antibiotic and then you withdraw the antibiotic and the body had a a hit of a toxin. Then candida can grow possibly as a protective benefit, but it gets out of control. So Saccharomyces boulardii resets that balance because it's not a, it's not a resident. It can't stick around. So it's fantastic for that where you have the toxin effect and then it goes away. But in a water-damaged building situation, when you're continuing to be exposed, and now if your own flora are the water-damaged building, so you become the sick building, now there's no withdrawal of that. So anything in the fungal family tells the body, yep, we're under attack. It reinforces that fearful message.
1: Interesting. So for women who have maybe an autoimmune condition and kind of like multiple symptoms. So I know for myself, when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, I had chemical sensitivity. Like I could smell someone 50 feet away and, th- and mm-hmm. say, oh, they wash their clothes with Tide. And I've even heard of women who experience EMF mm-hmm. sensitivity. Can you speak to why, if there is mold exposure, there might be these other kind of symptoms that trail along that seem sometimes like it's a trifecta, of things yes. like Lyme mold and EMF or chemical sensitivity mold and yeah
0: yeah so for infections Lyme mold EBV we see these all the time and then for you know mold has a lot of those trifectas the understanding is that mold mycotoxins are toxic to the organs of detoxification so your liver your kidneys your liver has a lot of other jobs that it has to do so it's supposed to be balancing our hormones. So it's making our blood sugar, metabolizing certain nutrients, cleaning out our fats and restoring our fat-soluble vitamins. So there's a lot of things the liver is supposed to be doing. And those activities get gummed up when you're exposed to mycotoxins. Mm -hmm. Also, happily living mold makes all those other chemicals I was talking about. So aldehydes, alcohols, VOCs, and those gum up the, the liver as well. So it basically gets backlogged with its job and it, Prioritizes these other things that have to do with our survival over hormone balance and over managing the chemicals. It'll just like you just get basically backlogged with those chemicals. So it's very common to see chemical sensitivity when you have mold exposure. It's like the new onset chemical sensitivity. I'm like, okay, what's your what's your water damage (laughs) history and also glyphosate. That's another one that can cause a lot of chemical sensitivity by breaking down the gut lining. Yeah, it's just this interesting, you know, people who live on a farm and then the farmhouse gets moldy, they become way chemically sensitive and usually have some kind of immune shutdown, like frequent infections turn into autoimmune disease. Right,
1: because there's a lot of like functional medicine doctors or people who are calling, right, come, the up and coming functional medicine. And I, to my functional medicine doctor, she like saved my life. But yeah. I think when people have multiple things going on, right, so maybe they have an Epstein-Barr virus. Lime, mold, the chemical sensitivity. I find that a really good doctor knows how to prioritize what to treat first, right? Yes. Versus I think a newer doctor just is like, tries to blast it all. Treat the lab. <laughs> yeah. Treat the lab. Mm-hmm. And I think a really good doctor knows what to prioritize. And so I'm curious yes. from your perspective, like, cause I know you see a lot of lime and a lot of mold and you know, an array of other, you know, trickled like the pandas, pans. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, you've seen someone with pots. It's Mm. like, what do you, what do you tackle first?
0: It depends on the individual. I wish that that was an easy answer. You know, that it really has to do with like recently I was consulting on a case where there was a brain injury that never really got treated appropriately, which caused all the same symptoms, you know, fatigue and brain injury affects the hormones that start in the brain. So your pituitary hormones, which is ADH, which is what we see with mold. We see urinary frequency due to ADH deficiency. We see that with brain injury also. So, you know, they had all these symptoms that I could have said, oh yeah, definitely an exposure to a water damage building. But as far as where our focus of treatment had to go, it was first toward brain injury. And then managing mold. So yeah, that the nuance there is really the art of practice. and that's why I'm on the mission to train more doctors to be mold literate so that they can understand how to suss it out, like the lab thing. that's that's a much bigger story than just urine mycotoxins, but you know, that's my typical one that I would use with mold. So we're just trying to understand what are the other it's, not everything is mold. And like you said, like there are people that can be in mold and not really get taken down. But they might have symptoms from something else. So we have to really understand what else the other causes are. Yeah. And treat the layer rather than treat the lab.
1: Right. Can you speak to how mold affects muscle tissue? So, for example, we talk a lot about muscle and how muscle is the organ of longevity, it is anti inflammatory, it's neuroprotective, it's so important. And, you know, especially in our society where we are more sedentary that you know a lot of us really think about oh we got to lose weight we got to lose the fat but really if you maintain the muscle you mm-hmm. are in a better place for decades moving forward can you speak to like how mold affects muscle or muscle tissue or even just the protein synthesis sure
0: yeah so those mycotoxins especially from black mold and the the bad guys that we talked about the bad bad guys those mycotoxins are potent protein synthesis inhibitors. And what that means is not just muscle, but proteins are our enzymes, our DNA, our RNA, our heme that carries oxygen around in our blood, so the ability to oxygenate tissues. But just on the, on the front side is skeletal muscle. That is a and I saw you had Dr. Tina Moore on, who I adore. Mm-hmm. And you know, I keep hearing her say, muscle is medicine. Muscle is medicine. And it's so true. You know, our muscles are more than just a looks thing. They they store nutrients, they store our resiliency, they assist so many functions, immune function, lymph movement, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So when you have the skeletal muscle breakdown basically what it is, is when you move a muscle, you can damage the muscle. And that's the whole idea of gaining muscle as you break it down so that it will build up bigger. Well, if you have mold on board, you don't get the repair part. The natural cycle of a muscle tissue of being built and then broken down, now we're only getting the broken down part. And people get less and less and less skeletal muscle mass. And that actually is how the connection with POTS the smooth muscle lining all of our blood vessels also gets impacted. And so people don't have the resiliency and the strength of those tissues and muscles as well.
1: Yeah. So for people who have been diagnosed with molds, it can feel very overwhelming. Where mm-hmm. would you have that person start?
0: Yeah. Well, like you're avoid- just like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> Avoidance. everything's going to be okay.
1: I have a plan yes. for you.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, that's I I worked really hard on my book to make sure it's like simple language for normal people and you know with brain fog even worse and that everything is in steps. Now, it's you don't go to, you know, Dr. Jill Jail if you don't do all the steps in <laughs> appropriate order. But it just helps because it it gives order to it, to a chaotic thing. When you find out your house is affected by mold, All of a sudden you're moving stuff, there's dust everywhere. You know, it's it's remediation. Yeah. So the simple steps, avoidance, number one. Number two is fundamentals, and that's basic treatment guidelines that you know, chiropractic and naturopathic doctors have done forever. And I'm very pushy about avoidance and I'm very pushy about diet. Those are my two biggies. People are surprised how much I push fat. But again, this fat-soluble toxin and the solution to pollution is dilution, you need lots and lots and lots of fat. So sometimes just putting someone on the liquid DHA, like Nordic Naturals DHA, Mm -hmm. I just have them drink it. Like Get as much of that as you can throughout the day. Sip off the bottle. Try to get through a couple bottles in the first week or two. And it's amazing how much that clarifies the mind. Mm, It kind of scoops up brain fog and, you know, it really helps get things moving again. And then vegetables, five to seven vegetables a day. And sometimes that's the only thing that someone can focus on for the first three months. You know, they're like, okay, I (laughs) just, because they feel better. You know, it is amazing. You get tons of DHA and you get, I have people drizzle olive oil all over everything that they eat, getting as much of those good fats after avoidance, and then as many vegetables as they can get in. And it is astounding how much that clears up a lot of the things that create the resistance. So fatigue, brain fog, gut problems, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Do you do you have any sort of focus? So it sounds like fats and the vegetables. Is there any sort of focus of like, because there might be like less muscle protein synthesis, any focus on like getting certain... Amount of protein per meal.
0: Yes, thank you for asking that. I keep forgetting to say that that um, people are very protein dependent, and because of the protein synthesis in the heme, they tend to be very animal protein dependent. Most people feel better when they're eating fish and animal protein. So you know, when when I kind of have my short list of dietary thing, which is tons and tons and tons of fat, supplement DHA because you're not going to get enough in your diet, lots of veggies good quality protein, animal-based protein. And if you need a snack, eat seeds. Because that is one of, and seeds should be in every meal. Seeds have the insoluble fiber, so that's your binder. So now we're at every meal, you're binding as you go. And what we're binding with mold, unless you're eating mold, you do need like a specific binder. And Dr. Nathan's doing some really cool work right now where he's finding which binder binds which mycotoxin and that kind of thing. But in most cases, you're inhaling, the mold. And that goes into your bloodstream, which goes to your liver, which gets pack- packaged up as bile and then sent to your gut. So we're really binding the bile. And any insoluble fiber will do that. So if you don't tolerate grains, which a lot of mold people don't, seeds, 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 because that has all the insoluble fiber and
1: tons of protein any and good fats. Any particular faves? <laughs> well, there are some,
0: I get asked a lot because people, a lot of times that have hashis also have SIBO because those are kind of common findings. So three SIBO-friendly fibers are sunflower seeds, that's on uh, Dr. Neurala Jacoby's biphasic diet, they're allowed, um, sesame seeds, and pumpkin seeds. And for me, whenever I make a squash, I save all the seeds and I make them right away. I'm going to do a video about that pretty soon because I I just think people, like, what a waste, you know, there goes all that fiber you could be (laughs) eating. I know.
1: And it's almost pumpkin season. Come on.
0: Yeah. Right. But uh, any squash, it doesn't have to be just pumpkin seeds. When, uh, whenever you're cleaning out a, the inner part of a squash, if you're making squash and save the seeds and
1: bake them, they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Where can people find you? You have so many resources online. You have a course, you have resources of other courses you love like um, Brian Carr's remediation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So-
0: that is a fantastic class by the way. So if all the stuff building is him, Mold Masterclass. And I, I do bodies. Yeah. So you can find me at drkrista.com. That's D-R-C-R-I-S-T-A.com. And on my video blog page, I have like one minute or less videos because I remember when I was sick with mold, it had to be one topic, make it short, <laughs> get to the point. <laughs> I could not do it. <laughs> totally. Yes. So most of the videos are nice, short, easy to digest, little tips. And I've Handouts, a DIY cleaning solution that'll help kill mold on your surfaces and neutralize mycotoxins. So lots of stuff on my website. Is, on,
1: right? What's that? Which is not bleach based. Not bleach based. It's not bleach not based.
0: Not bleach yeah. based. Yeah, essential oil based, which not everybody tolerates. But and then I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and yeah, I'm trying to get the word out.
1: Yeah, and and you are. It's a. It's amazing. Um, I I feel like I've learned so much from listening to all these podcasts um, that you've been on and just really diving into your site. So thank you so much. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me on and helping me spread the word.
1: Awesome. Thank you. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to muscle medicine podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing muscle medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.